Well, g'day Bridgetown Church. What a joy to be able to share God's word with you today. And uh, just, I just want to start by saying how much I love your pastor. John Mark has been such a dear friend to me, such a, a kindred spirit and source of encouragement. And also Tammy and the rest of the family, just a beautiful family. And I'm just so honored that uh, you would give me the opportunity with people I respect so much to speak into your church. So thank you for letting me preach today. And I just want to commend you as a church family for just standing firm and making it through 2020. I know that your city was one of the cities hit hardest, both by uh, the protests and violence, uh, also with the fires that happened there. And yet you've been graciously and passionately pursuing the way of Jesus there. And uh, so I've got so much respect for you and uh, so much honor for the way that what God's done in you is ringing out around the world, like it says in 1 Thessalonians. So much love to your pastors and much love to you as a community. Now, John Mark came to me and he said, hey, I'd love you to speak on prayer. And prayer is one of the great themes of my life. And I said, uh, well, what, what exactly do you want me to preach on? And he said, well, you can speak on anything you want. And so I'm going to give a talk today uh, that is trying to answer a very simple question. And this is what it is. How do you walk with God? So I want to tell you up front, I'm normally a, a preacher, a teacher, but I actually want this to be really informal. I want this to be more, in essence, like I'm sharing from my heart. If you were to take me to hard espresso and to say, you know, can I, can I get you a flat wire and can we sit down and John, would you just be willing to share with me about what you've learned about walking with God? This is what I'd say. So rather than getting you, you know, fired up and exhorting you, can you just sort of receive this like you're sitting down and we're sharing together some of the insights and vision of what it means to actually walk with God? I want to base today's teaching from a verse in Hebrews 11. I want to give you a vision of what it means to walk with God. Hebrews 11 verse 5 says this, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. What an what extraordinary verse. Where's Enoch? We can't find him anywhere. I think God took him. He was literally translated. One of the few people in human history who didn't experience death. Yet, it says, before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Talk about a vision of the Christian life walking with God and then having a record stated about you that before we go, we are those who please God. Now, the question is, how do you do it? How do you walk with God? If you were to ask me, John, how do you walk with God? You've been a Christian for some time now. You've been pastoring in the middle of New York City, coming up on 16 years. It's a secular environment. There's a lot of pressure, intensity. How do you walk with God? Well, I just I want to share with you how I walk with God in a typical day. Annie Dillard said in the writing life, how we spend our days, of course, is how we spend our lives. And so I just want to give you everything I've learned about spending your day with God so you can walk with him and you can please him. And in each section, there's going to be three movements to the day that I want to address in this uh, in this teaching. And in each section, I want to talk about the vision I want to talk about the practice. 
And I want to talk about the fruit that I've seen come from posturing your heart in prayer in this particular way. So let's start, one, by what we do with our morning. What we do with our morning. So the vision of the morning in walking with God is intimacy with Him. The vision of a morning is intimacy with God. And this to me is all about abiding. This is found in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and it withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Now the vision is intimacy with God. The practice of doing this is abiding. You see, this passage makes a claim that there is a source, there is power, and there's a fruit in all of our lives. All of us have a source that we go to, and all of us try and draw power from it, and all of us bear the fruit of whatever we're rooted in, in our lives. And this passage says that we need to make sure that we are not rooted and abiding in the wrong things. You see, it's possible today, and maybe almost more than any other time, certainly any other time in our lifetimes, is it possible to be religious, but your religion and practice of your religion to be toxic to your soul? And this is what Jesus is addressing in this passage. He says, make sure that you are not rooted and abiding in the wrong things. Now, what's almost hard to believe in this passage is that if, the, if you were one of the, the children of Israel and you were, you were hearing Jesus teach this passage, the idea of a vine would have been very, very familiar language. The children of Israel knew that they were the vine. But Jesus shows up on the scene because the way that they had practiced their faith was doing spiritual damage and was almost unrecognizable from the covenant commands that God had given them. And so Jesus comes along and he warns them and says, do not be rooted in the wrong things. Look at, look at what Israel did. It says that they got rooted in selfishness. Hosea 10 verses 1 through 2, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As the fruit increased, he bought more, built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. The heart is deceitful, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy the sacred stones. So the children of Israel used their relationship with God in an idolatrous way to produce fruit for themselves. Don't be rooted in selfishness. Second thing he says is that they'd gone, become corrupt and wild. Jeremiah 2.21, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt and wild vine? So we said there's a way that the children of Israel had taken their relationship, but they had turned away. They'd become corrupt and they'd gone wild. He goes on in Ezekiel 15 and says that they are useless now and good for nothing. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. How is the wood of a vine different from any other branch of any tree in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it made anything useful? So the children of Israel were practicing their faith in a way that God literally says, the way you practice your religion is pointless. It can be idolatrous and selfish. We can go wild and untethered. 
and we can practice our faith in a way that makes absolutely no difference. In fact, Jesus goes on in his critique of the vine and says that they have basically made for themselves a human system. In Mark 12, he tells the parable of the vineyard workers and the tenants. And he basically says in verse 7, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the influence will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So the chief priests, teachers of the law and the elders look for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So Jesus is saying this to the children of Israel. He says, formal religion is no longer a reliable guide for godly fruit. Because so often we corrupt it and make it about ourselves. We go wild in our faith and it actually becomes useless. So Jesus says this, I'm the vine. You need to be moving away from a religious system into an intimate relation, relationship with me as a person. And this is important for us because right now there is so many layers around our faith. There's so much Christian culture, so many Christian books, so many Christian podcasts that if we're not careful, we position our hearts and we try and draw nourishment from secondary religious sources rather than from the person of Jesus himself. And the goal of our faith is to be formed into the image of Jesus, not into the image of late modern Christian culture. Dallas Willard says this, spiritual formation for the Christ follower refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. And so that's what we're doing when we're abiding. In the morning, we sit down, we carve out space, unhurried space, to be in the presence of God, to take out God's word, to marinate in it slowly and to let it form us. And this is not a process and a time where we're asking things from God. This is simply a time where we receive nourishment from Christ, where we allow his peace and his presence and his power to transform our inner lives through communion with him into the inner being of Christ himself. This is in, in many ways a time of passive receiving. Fleming Rutledge says this, there's a fashion today exhorting us to live into various things, live into our baptism, live into our calling, live into our mission. I think that's a very 21st century humanist, do-it-yourself way of speaking. We don't live into the vine who is the life of the church and of each Christian. The vine lives into us. We live from the vine, from the word of God, from the body and blood of Christ, from the tireless work of the spirit in you every morning. So this is where we consciously enjoy our union with Christ and we allow his presence to come to us. Now, I know this can be challenging because a lot of us struggle with sin and guilt and shame. And so as a result, we feel unworthy to receive the love of Christ. But in this passage, Jesus says something very interesting. He never tells us to remain in how we feel about him because we are fickle. We are inconsistent. And if we only go to God based on our current performance, we'll never go to him at all. So instead, we are rooted in the way he feels about us. Jesus says, 
remain in my love. And so every morning out of a vision of intimacy with God, we come and we remain, we abide in his presence. We marinate in his word. We, we let it sit into our being. Let it dissolve into us and to shape us deeply. And when we're rooted in the right thing, when we're tethered to the right thing, the fruit of his kingdom comes through us. And that's what the fruit is. The fruit is flourishing, a healthy and a flourishing soul. John 15, Jesus says this, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What a picture of the fruit that comes from our intimacy with Jesus. This is the vision of the morning to set your alarm, to set your heart, to come into his presence. Unhurried time where we receive life and nourishment and joy and identity and peace from him. And that slowly our spirit is formed into the image of Christ himself. We need this right now because we live in an anxious time. And I believe that abiding is actually the cure for the anxiety of the time that we live in. A couple months back with John Mark and a few uh, other brothers, we had the chance of sitting with Jim McNeish, who is really an extraordinary sort of therapist and psychologist. And he was talking about how to actually have a resilient and calm spirit in the midst of so much anxiety. And he says there's basically things happen due to the, the time that we live in, the media that we're experiencing, the tension and all of the trauma, that what ends up happening is it triggers a part of our brain and our physiology where we move into an anxious state. It's sort of a state of hyper arousal. We just can't turn it off. And he says in this state, we have increased sensation, emotional reactivity, disorganized thinking and intrusive imagery. We're just dominated by fear and pressure. And then we stay there till our adrenal glands can handle it. And then we drop to a place, not of anxiety, but of apathy. We're overwhelmed. overwhelmed. There's a loss of sensation. Our emotions are just numbed. We're burned out. We can't think clearly. And we experience physical exhaustion in the things that we're doing. And so much of our culture right now looks like this. Anxiety that drifts into apathy. Anxiety that drifts into apathy. And it says the only way that we can process all of that intensity in those emotions in a healthy way is that we have to enter into a psychological state of basically peace. And this is one of the ways that you do it is you calm yourself down and you access memories of a happier time. I think there's an even better way. You know what that is? That is coming to the presence of God himself and enjoying his love. That's one of the, the, the promises we have of Scripture, that we can enjoy His presence. Now, what happens in that middle zone, what I'm calling the abiding zone? It's where we can make sense of what's happening to us. It's where we can derive meaning from the events that seem so meaningless because God shows us the way that He is writing our story. It's where we can sort of finish and close the loops of the fragmented parts of our story because we're, we're trusting God that He is writing these things. We can come into his presence and we can rest. And that's why it says in Philippians chapter four, don't, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now I've never seen this connection before. Then the next verses say, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, 
If anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so this is the process of recentering all of our concerns and casting all of our anxiety on Him because He cares for us. And that's what abiding is. We get out of the anxious and the apathetic zones. We come consciously into His presence to abide with Him, sit with Him, receive His love. We give Him our care. He gives us His peace. And over the course of time, it changes and reorients our thought processes where we decenter and remove anxiety and we center the good, the true, the beautiful Christ Himself. I'm telling you, if you take time in the morning, every morning, to come into His presence and to receive His love, you will move through the world, not with an anxious presence, but an abiding presence. During the early stages of, of COVID, when, when the tension was like at its highest, there was so much uncertainty. People didn't know what to do about COVID. People didn't know how seriously to take it. People thought this was just a ploy from the government to take away our freedom. In fact, at the start of COVID, you got in trouble for trying to sell masks because they said it's a form of manipulation. And then now you get in trouble if you don't wear a mask. That, that's how much lack of clarity and awareness of what was actually happening was going on. And right at the start of it, I got COVID and my wife got COVID. And my wife got so deathly ill and she was laying in bed and it was just like, it was such a paralyzing thing. Just nothing I could do to help her. And this was at the point where if you went to the hospital and got put on a ventilator, it was basically a death sentence. Like 85% of people were dying when that happened. So my wife's in bed saying, I'm gonna die here. And it was so intense. She's like doing voice memos for my daughter on the day of her marriage. And she's giving me instructions about what to do when she's gone. I mean, it was so intense. And I felt Jesus say to me the most bizarre thing in the morning when I was praying, I felt him say this, I want you to enjoy my presence. And I was like, Lord, I don't know if you're aware of this, not a season of enjoyment right now. It's a season of intensity, fear and anxiety and uncertainty, a sense of overwhelm. But out of obedience, I would get up in the mornings before I would try and care for my wife and care for my children. And I would just sit in his presence and I would just thank him. Thank him that I, I was rooted and grounded in the unconditional, unconditional and unshakable love of Jesus. And I would just let it like, like a thirsty flower. I'd let it, the, the truths of that go up into my spirit. And I would find every day that the anxiety disappeared. And instead there was a transcendent peace in my heart. Now, look, I'm not talking about larger psychological realities. That's a whole nother talk. And a lot of work's been done on that in your church. I'm just talking about walking with God day by day. And the most perfect way to start our day that I can think of is that we get a vision of being intimate with him. We abide in his presence and we experience the fruit of joy and peace that he promises. Catherine of Genoa, an Italian Roman Catholic saint, she said this, when God finds a soul that rests in him and is not easily moved, he operates within it in his own manner. The soul allows God to do great things within it. He gives to such a soul the key to the treasures he has prepared for it so that it might enjoy them. And to this same soul, he gives the joy of his presence, which entirely absorbs such a soul. That's the vision of starting a day walking with God, to abide in his presence and let him absorb our soul. One, morning.
two, daytime. What do you do with the rest of the day? You, you ever had this? this? This happens to me so often. You have this powerful time in the morning. It's just like a living manner. You're worshipping God and this tangible presence. You, you're worried that if you open your eyes, you're going to see Christ himself. And then eight minutes later, when you go into your day, it's like, what even happened? Where's the presence of God? Like, was that even real? And so often by lunchtime, even though I've done like a proper devotional time and I've journaled and I've written all this stuff out, if you were to say to me, like, what did you do this morning with God? I'd be like, this morning? Did I spend this morning with God? Life's coming at us hard. And so one of the, the, the second disciplines we have to do if we're going to walk with God is figure out how to understand the presence of God during the day. And so this is the second part of prayer. First kind of prayer is abiding. Second kind of prayer is prayers of awareness. Prayers of awareness. The vision is to interact with God all day long. I think there's no better passage on this in the Gospels than John chapter 5. Now, the context of this passage, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals and he walks by one of the pools where they used to lay people because it was rumored that if an angel stirred the water, there was healing. And so that's the context of this passage. John 5 verse 1, this is what it says. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So can we just put this in context for a moment? Have you ever been in a room of breathtaking need? It's almost like going into an emergency room right here. There's people and it says they're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed, and there's a great number of them. One who had been there, as an invalid for 38 years. So that's a long time to show up. Now listen to this phrase. When Jesus saw him. When Jesus saw him. Laying there. And learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Now it's an interesting question. We don't have time to go into it. And he basically goes on to say, when the water stirred, I, I don't have anybody to get me down there. People always get there before me. Then Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now this causes a great controversy. Verse 16 says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus gives him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. The father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Now, this is an extraordinary passage, and I think it's one of the most important ones because it shows us the way that Jesus discerned what to do. And this is the practice for the day. It's the practice of an awareness. Verse 19, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Now, the reason this is such an extraordinary passage to me because there's a multitude of need 
Yet when Jesus surveyed the need, he was able to see specifically what in that moment the Father himself was doing. He was paying attention. He was aware of where God was, what God was working. William James says this, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. Our life experience will equal our attention. Awareness in a time of distraction is a key spiritual practice. Gordon McCoskey says this, talking about the online uh, debates about communion. He says, in the digital age, it may be the case that the classical debates about the presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist have been inverted. The question with which we may now have to wrestle is not in what way is the Lord present in the supper? Instead, the question is, in what ways are we present? It's like we show up to church, we show up to the most intimate Christian events, and we're just not there. We're so overwhelmed and distracted by what's happening. Lawrence Kushner tells the story uh, about our lack of awareness. And it tells the story about two Israelites, Yvonne and Shimon, who had different experiences than everybody else during the Exodus. Apparently the bottom of the sea, though safe to walk on, this is when the God's parting the sea, it wasn't completely dry, but it was a little bit muddy, like, like a beach at low tide. And so Ravon stepped into it and he curls his lip. What is this muck? Shimon scowled. There's mud all over the place. This is just like the slime pits of Egypt, replied Ravon. What's the difference, complained Shimon. Mud here, mud there, it's all the same. And so it went on for the two of them, grumbling all the way across the bottom of the sea. And because they never once looked up, they never understood why on the distant shore everyone else was singing songs of praise. For Reuven and Shimon, the miracle never happened. They missed the miracle because they weren't paying attention. They never lifted their eyes because they were so familiar with the conditions around them. And so often I think that that's a lot of our life. We're complaining in the midst of our circumstances and we're not aware of what it is that God is doing. Simone Will described attention as just and loving concentration upon an individual or situation. Just and loving concentration. And it's amazing when you read the teachings of Jesus, how many times he says, look, see, Listen, give heed, behold. It's like Jesus is going through the world, God in the flesh saying, are you even noticing God is in your midst? There was a book written called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in the book, the author makes the case that hurry is one of the great enemies. Busyness is a threat to our soul. I agree with that. Pascal complimenting that says this, Inattention is the greatest enemy of our spiritual life. If you don't slow down, you won't see. You won't be able to pay attention and you miss the work of God around you. Boyd says this, I believe this is the most prevalent and tragic misunderstanding that afflicts contemporary Christian Western Christianity. We make a vow to submit our life to Christ, but then spend 99% of our time excluding him from our awareness. We make him Lord over our life in theory, but we do not make him Lord over most of the moments that make up our lives. 
The fact is, we can't dis- if we can't discern God's presence in our day-to-day lives, it's unlikely that we'll find him at a revival. We may find a lot of excitement, great speakers, superb music, maybe even some signs and wonders, but unless a person learns to find God as much in the ordinary as in the exciting, the exciting will do nothing more than serve as a momentary distraction. Isn't this true in the ministry of Jesus? How often Jesus does a miracle and says, don't tell anybody about this. I don't want this to be a distraction from the actual message I have at hand. And how many times Jesus is actually doing things in total obscurity. Isn't it amazing how many times Jesus sees things we never see? And that's why if we're going to follow Jesus during the day, have a sense of awareness and interact with God's kingdom We have to learn to do what Beekner says, which is to frame the moments. We are looking for the moments and awareness of what God's doing. And we pause for these Kairos portals and we frame them as the activity and inbreaking of God's kingdom. Beekner says this, art is saying stop. It helps us to stop by putting a frame around something and makes us see it in a way we would never would have under normal circumstances of living, as so many of us do on sort of automatic pilot, going through the world without really seeing much of anything. Framing the moment. This is what Jesus did. You think about the encounters of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus is always seeing the other, the obvious and the overlooked. It blows my mind what percentage of the Gospels are simply Jesus seeing people other people didn't see. The little children, and they want to be blessed, and the disciples are like, we don't have time for that. Jesus says, hold on, frames a moment and says, you know what God's doing? He's showing you who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And then he takes time, lays his hands on them and blesses them. Jesus is walking down the road, the widow at Nan. He sees a woman who is uh, dealing with the death of her son. It's It's a funeral profession. Jesus stops, frames the moment out of compassion, and then raises the son from the dead and says to the woman, here's your son back. Everybody else saw a death. Jesus saw the possibility of resurrection life. You think that Jesus is in a crowd and everybody's gathered around him. In fact, he's on his way to do another miracle. And a woman with the issue of the blood touches him. And Jesus stops, frames a moment and says, power has gone out from me. Who touched me? The disciples who can't see because they're not aware of what the father's doing in that moment. They say, Lord, everybody's touching you. He said, no, 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 no. Someone's come after me with faith. And so the woman comes forward and he says, woman, your faith has healed you. Frames a moment. And this is the art of life. This is why we have to ask the question, Father, where have you been working in advance to extend your kingdom? And as I step into every room, I'm saying, where's the Father working? Where's he been preparing something in advance? Where's the Kairos moment? How do I frame this ordinary time as a divine portal? God, show me what you're doing. And the fruit of this is encountering Jesus' ministry in our modern world, in our everyday life. Dallas Willard says this, watch for the hand of God to move and join in. And I love that. You see, in our modern culture, productivity comes from work and often leads to exhaustion. But in the kingdom life, awareness leads to the identification of what the Father's always doing, and it leads to participation. 
One of these will burn you out doing things for God, but partnering with him by being aware of what he's doing, this will fill your spirit with life. Where's the father been moving in advance to extend his kingdom? And I got, I got so many stories of just during the day, ordinary day, ordinary moments, just pausing and saying, Father, where are you working in this situation? I remember one time on a Sunday night at church, I was, I was giving a sermon on the ways that church can hurt us and the importance of forgiveness. So you've got to get the setting. We're, in t- we're just off Times Square and 46th Street. We're in a high school and the room is packed. We do a response and people flood the altar. So there's people everywhere. And yet I'm drawn to one person and I just see this young woman and just something in my heart says, it's hard to describe, but there's either something on her or there's God's highlighting her. I'm trying to frame up what it is that God's doing. Well, I end up having a conversation with this girl who, if you can't even make this stuff up, she's from Australia. She used to go to the same church that I went to. She was wounded by the same leader that had wounded me. She was, was only in New York for a couple of months. She randomly showed up at our church, though she almost missed it. And she'd been wrestling with bitterness in her heart. And she'd been crying out to God for breakthrough. Now, So on my end, I'm down the front of a church. I'm trying to discern what the Holy Spirit's doing. On her end, she's wrestling with unforgiveness. She's struggling with something that happened through a painful experience with a church in her past. Now, she randomly shows up to a church in New York. And little did she know that the pastor used to go to the same church she went to, was hurt by the same people that she'd been hurt by, had figured out how to forgive them and live in grace towards them, was able to pray with her in that moment so she could be set free. Her story, I'm in New York randomly. She goes to a church randomly. She hears an Australian pastor, Hal Bazaar, who happened to know the very people that caused the pain in her life and was able to pray with her. You can't make that up. Where's the father working? And so this will transform our lives rather than doing things for God and burning out. We're like Jesus who's moving through life saying, Father, what are you doing next? Now, some of you with sort of like activist instincts, you're like, yeah, but what if there's not enough? Look, calm down. Jesus says this, my father's always working. So there's always kingdom activity if we're paying attention. But what a vision. In the morning, we're intimate with him. We abide. During the day, we're interacting with him through an awareness of his presence. And then three, evening. This to me is about intercession. This is a different kind of prayer. I have pastored a church uh, for many years, predominantly filled with people in their 20s. And I've just had so many conversations about how people use time in a busy place like New York. And year after year, as I was just sitting with people and listening to their stories and trying to sort of walk with them spiritually, I noticed a consistent trend. And here's the trend that just sort of popped up. People waste time on useless things before bed. That's almost like gospel reality. So I'm talking to people and it's like I'm falling asleep while I'm scrolling through social media and I wake up drooling and my phone's frozen in my hand. Or people would be like, I was really tired and I was overwhelmed, so I was trying to take the edge off it. So I just put on one episode of a Netflix show and 2 a.m. I'm four episodes in, slapping my face, seeing if I can finish out this series and it not affect me. That end of the daytime 
is a precious time so prone to be wasted. And so I began to say to myself, why is this happening repeatedly? It's because the choice architecture of our lives, we get up as late as possible, we're scrambling all day long, we're exhausted when we come home, we need to take the edge off and relax somehow, and that equals numbing ourselves out. And that is not the vision of fruit and life that Jesus offers us. So I said, I'm going to try and do something with my evening that's a little bit different. I'm going to try and use my, my evenings for intercession, to really wrestle with God and contend with God. And I, I want to see if my life changes. There's power when people redeem wasted time and give it to God and intercession. And to be honest with you, a lot of people love abiding, being centered, self-care, dealing with our anxiety. People love those stories, those God stories, framing the moment, seeing the hand of God. But very few people love this vision of intercession because it costs us and because it's hard. And I think sometimes that's why there's so little power in the church is because not only are we not walking with God, we're not contending for his purposes. Origen says this, one saint who prays is much more powerful than countless sinners who wage war. But if one saint doesn't pray and the sinners go to war, where's the power? This is a vision of intercession. Look at what it says in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. So we are called, it says in this passage, to wrestle, not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. We are invited into spiritual war. Now, the reason that this is important is because so much of our faith and so much of the tradition that we're a part of right now has pushed the supernatural away. And so therefore, as a result, instead of wrestling with demons, we demonize people. Instead of pushing back on the kingdom of darkness, we push back on people themselves. And instead of fighting with Satan, we turn people into Satan. And as a result, we, result, we demonize, we villainize, and we end up hating the very people Jesus calls us to have a very distinct enemy love for. And so we have to make sure that we're wrestling with the right things. And then we need to see Jesus teaching that without radical prayer and fasting, we, there are some things locked up both in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness that will not be released unless we engage in these ways. Mark chapter 9, you know the story, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and his disciples are in a debate, a theological debate, because they can't get a demon out of a little boy. And so, and that's obviously, by the way, that's what evangelicals do when they have no power. They debate theology. And so Jesus ends up showing up and he says, what's the problem here? And the, and the dad's like, can't, can't get the demon out of my boy. And so he says, if you can do anything, help him. Jesus is like, if, if. And so then Jesus casts a demon out. Now the disciples need to do a little ministry debrief. And they're like, why, why could we do this? We've had success casting demons out of people before. What was the problem with a demon inside this little boy? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. There are some things 
This is a lesson for the disciples. You've got power for these sort of principalities, but you're banging into something else and you need more power than the thing that you're encountering right now. And I think that's, that's a moment for the church right now. We don't have the power for this kind that we are up against. And so the practice then, the vision is intercession, but the practice has to be aggressive prayer. Aggressive prayer. Dutch Sheets in his book, Intercessory Prayer, says this. Intercessory prayer is an extension of the ministry of Jesus through his body, the church, whereby we mediate between God and humanity for the purpose of reconciling the world to him. Or between Satan and humanity for the purpose of enforcing the victory of Calvary. To intercede or to be an advocate means you come between something, either between God uh, and, and the world or between satanic forces to implement the victory of God. The intercessor wants to intercede through us. Jesus wants to extend his ministry. The mediator wants to mediate through us. The representative wants to represent through us. The go-between wants to go between through us. The victor wants his victory enforced through us. And the minister of reconciliation has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We now represent him and God continues to incarnate his purposes through our lives, lives of intercession. And so we have to realize, we have to banish this evangelical passivity, this overemphasis on the sovereignty of God that is an unhealthy obsession. What we need to do is to focus on the promises of God through prayer and enforcing them through humble defiance. So what do we pray against? We tear down ideologies. Paul says that we tear down anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so part of our prayers, I mean, you want to talk about living in an age of ideologies? We live in an age of ideologies. And most of our complaint against them is criticism. It's not intercession. Criticizing an ideology will not tear it down. What we need is God's people to come together and to tear down the strongholds that set themselves up in people's minds against the knowledge of God. We need to pray that God will open people's eyes. 2 Corinthians 4 says, If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. And so what we need to do is we need to pray, Lord, let your light shine in their hearts. Let them see the face of Jesus. We have to pray that non-believers' eyes will be open to the truth of the gospel. We need to pray that God will open doors for his kingdom. Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. I love this. Pray I may proclaim it clearly. Pray the word of God will spread, move, be honored, make sense, gain traction. What a vision of partnering with God in prayer and seeing his kingdom break in. And that's, that's what the fruit is. The fruit is is breakthrough. There's the normal formational process of walking with God and then there's the breakthrough of his kingdom. Spurgeon says this, whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. And so some people get a little too spiritual and they say, well, we, we should never ask God for things. Said Jesus Christ, never. Don't be more spiritual than Jesus. Jesus says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus says, though, if you're evil and you give good gifts, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Asking is the rule of the kingdom. We ask for our own needs. We ask for the needs of our generation. We ask for the needs of those who are in bondage. We ask for God to open doors. God moves history through the intercessory prayers of his people. And I'm telling you, if you replace the end of day numbing with end of day intercession, it will transform your faith. 2020, I've been walking with God for 25 years. And 2020 was the year I saw the most specific staggering answers to prayer in my life. I, I, I said in uh, September, I'm going to do a 30 day fast. There was a particular thing that I needed from God. A couple of days in, boom, the answer shows up. It was just one of those times where my heart was set on pressing into the kingdom of God and it manifested itself. And so I have found so much joy in bearing the burden of God, being a watchman on the wall, contending for the purposes of God in this generation. And I believe that if you make yourself available, you go into his presence, you take his word, you pray it into situations, you declare, you announce, you push his promises, you push back on evil, you cancel the plans of the evil one, you will see things begin to shift in your life. And ultimately, I'm telling you this because I think this is in many ways the pattern or rhythm of how Jesus walked with his father. Jesus had a vision of intimacy, abiding with God. He was often up early, before the light, spending time with his father. Jesus was always trying to discern what his father was up to. That's why you couldn't put Jesus on a human strategic plan. There was no strategic plan for the spirit-led son of God. He was just going wherever the father was leading him. And then lastly, we see Jesus wrestling with God in prayer. He had a life of intercession. And right now, Jesus lives to make intercession for us right now. Jesus intercedes at the right hand of the father and the spirit intercedes through us when we make ourselves available to join Jesus in intercession for his purposes in the world. So, at a coffee shop and having a simple chat, how do you walk with God? How do you, how do, you do that? My best answer that's borne so much fruit in my life, the mornings are for intimacy, abiding in his love. The day is for awareness, interacting with God. And the evenings are for intercession, aggressively contending for his kingdom at this time of history. That is a life of prayer. And it may not sound profound, it may sound quite simple, but Karl Barth says this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. And I just can't help but be filled with hope and vision for your city and for your future, when the people of Bridgetown in fresh ways like never before clasp their hands in prayer and may the uprising grow and gain traction against the disorder of your city and your world. Amen.